Um, feel free to change your background or not have a background. I don't, we care none at all. Like, I kind of like the living room deal. I don't know deal. how to do that. This is a technology I really don't know how to do it. Um, so Trent's going to be running it today, Lauren. Um, I'll be in the background. I think I'm going to turn off my camera, guys. I've had a long day. So I just want to sit and learn precast concrete here from you guys. Um, I will pop back on. Uh, I know Nathan Wood and a couple others are coming with heavy questions. They saw this and they love it. So, well, so you're monitoring well, questions yeah. for us. I'll, uh, you're, I'll you're Nathan, a Nathan gets one question for one us. question. <laughs> <laughs> one, we can boot him individually off the show too, right? <laughs> right. I can. So if you want anyone booted, just let me know. <laughs> and I guess I got to get those out. Point. Those out too, so that we don't get caught on an apple for swearing. I guess. Do we care? We're not. We're not maing it. Try not though, to right? swear. Try not to swear. Yeah. Well, the other thing I can do you is get I can one. Just start marking it as explicit, and then mm -hmm. we can do whatever the yeah. f bomb we want. Yeah. That'll be when we do these in person again. <laughs> That's when you're gonna like. Yeah, I try my best all. not to. It, yeah. Sometimes it. Oh, I swear a lot. So <laughs> we are in construction. It kind of comes. Everybody's right in construction. Yep. I can't not. Yeah. So, sorry. Welcome to episode eight of the Construction Dorkcast. On this episode, we invite in TJ Chin and Lauren Williams to help school us on how coordination isn't just an MEP thing. We have a great conversation about how concrete fabricators are getting into the game as well. Sit back with your favorite cocktail and enjoy how we get deeply nerdy on this topic and have some laughs, maybe earning the explicit check mark along the way. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today for the newest episode of the Construction Dorks. Um, we are happy to join everyone as it usually is. We are going to start off by introducing ourselves and our guests and their favorite beverages. Um, today's topic is coordination in concrete. So it's a really good industry topic that, uh, that Trent brought to us and TJ and Lauren were we're nice enough to join us as our experts today. So Jonathan, I'm going to start with you since you're off to my left there. That works, man. Um, so I had a long day, so I'm going with, um, whoops, I'm going with a Nika grain. All right, man. So, so it's Nika coffee grain that doesn't have anything to do with coffee. It has to do with how they brew that whiskey and it is awesome. It's a Japanese whiskey and uh, Suhu uh mr kevin suhu introduced me to it and now it's like my wife's favorite whiskey so like i get poor whenever we go to the liquor store because she's sitting there with like two bottles behind her back and it's like it's this it's the it's it's at least the middle shelf of whiskeys man uh, that's my drink for today yeah we all kind of thank suhu for that one because my dad he sent it to me and my dad and i sat down and drank that one and now my dad's always like you need to get me another one when i come out there to see you so at least we can't travel right now so i don't have that but thanks to suhu <laughs> for for that one uh trent how about you today cool i've got a russell's reserve kentucky straight rye here right on. Get it in there. i love a good rye. and no just like last time it's not a clear rye it's just that empty. You started early, right? I'm starting Bad. to sense a pattern, pattern here, Trent. Yeah. I think this is being documented. Right. Like I think I feel like this is going like to show of, up in a in a meeting later when your friends right. gather you in a room. Yeah, they're like, "Hey, Trent, we're glad we could all get you here. A lot of people that care about you." you know? Yeah. 
Mr. Travis Voss. Uh, well, today I have uh, one of my favorite uh, local breweries here, if I can get to show up, is Wishful Acres uh, Farm and Brewery. They started as a cons uh, consumer-supported agriculture and then started a brewery. So um, it is a copper specialty ale. It's called Unicorn Tears. Uh, definitely one of my favorites. Ooh, I like Unicorn Tears. Uh, Jonathan, there has been a request already in the chat for you to rename <laughs> your drink since someone joined <laughs> us late. And that's a shame on you for joining late. Right. Next time, be on time if you want to know what it is we're drinking. So, Jonathan, what was that you were drinking oh, again? I, I'm, doing a Nika, I'm doing a Nika coffee grain, which is like a really nice Japanese whiskey. It's beautiful. You should definitely imbibe. All right. Lauren, we're going to start with you. How about you, our guest for the day, Lauren Williams? Uh, well, I'm, I missed the memo that said I needed to have something like – either unique or less embarrassing than truly. Um, no, there's nothing wrong with truly. Wrong. Um, typically, I, I can down a bottle of wine rather easily. I think Jeff's witnessed that himself. That's my, my beverage of choice. Well, no one's going to blame you for anything. I'm usually the guy drinking Zip Fizz, so you know, so don't you worry. And, and yes, I can attest that I have had many evenings feet up, dorking out with Lauren Williams. So um, she yep. is a fantastic addition, and I'm excited to have her. And TJ, thank you for joining us. TJ Chin, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're drinking today. So, uh, again, I'm kind of like Lauren. I missed the memo on something unique. And actually, I, I ended up finding one beer in my cooler. <laughs> Miller Lite. Uh, it's not my beer of choice, but it's what I got today. Uh, sometimes it's in my what cooler too, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and it's only got one more calorie than Michelob Ultra. If you guys are watching TV lately, so I guess that leaves me. And I am actually joining everyone today. I had an opportunity to ride at lunch, so this one's for you guys. But it's a special bottle today. So this is a Stranahan's, and it's a single malt whiskey, and it's actually provided to me by one Mr. Rob McKinney. So if you've been watching the news, there's some changes with Rob, and, and that was a thank you from him. So uh, this one's to him and to, uh, to the crew and everybody that started this podcasting journey for me. I really appreciate all of you. Appreciate everybody joining today. Without further ado, I'm going to disappear into the back and handle the questions. I'm going to let these brains go, and I'm going to learn from you. Trent, why don't you introduce the subject and uh, a little bit about why you wanted to talk about this and have fun. Absolutely, guys. So the, this one uh, kind of came to my mind a, a few weeks ago uh, when we are going through some show ideas, and um, we were trying to decide who we wanted to have on, and immediately... Uh, TJ Chin came to my mind, a guy that I've worked with uh, on a project here very recently. And I know Jeff suggested Lauren Williams. So we found two amazing guests for this. And the reason I wanted to talk about um, this level of coordination is because on our show, we talk a lot and we're very MEP focused, right? And, and that's by bias. I mean, you know, me, Jonathan, Travis, uh, you know, three of the four of us are incredibly MEP focused in what we do. So uh, that's just what we talk a lot about is coordinating mechanical, electrical, plumbing, everything. But there's kind of a new thing coming around now um, because as we leverage models more and more and we push to, to efficiently build our projects through prefabrication, um, we're, we're not the only trades doing it. Um, you'll, you'll look around and you'll see a lot of architectural guys, a lot of um, 
lot of wall panel guys doing the same thing. You know, I, I know you've probably seen on LinkedIn a lot of the stuff that James uh, Hiljagas has done with wall panels and, and, and structure is no different. So we're seeing a lot of precast concrete finding its way into our jobs nowadays. And it's, it's not just parking garages. It's not just warehouses like it was in the past. Uh, TJ and I are working on a very large detention center right now that is a precast structure with, I don't know, TJ, what do you, what do we got? Uh, maybe a thousand toilets in that thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's not <laughs> just structures that don't have plumbing and, and things that you need to coordinate in them anymore. And this isn't going to change because as the world moves towards prefabrication, every trade is moving towards prefabrication. So that's what sparked this idea. I wanted to bring experts in and kind of chat about it. Uh, so I'll start with TJ here uh, just because I have the closer relationship with him on, on what we're doing right now. But um, TJ kind of, talk to me about what you're seeing um, in the modern coordination nowadays that's that's letting your company achieve what it needs to do to um, to build your concrete for these jobs yep so actually the the project you just mentioned uh, the detention center is probably the first project at least that I've been involved with where we've had MEP coordination up front that has helped facilitate our prefabrication um, past projects, we, we don't really get that level of coordination. It's kind of an afterthought. Um, you know, we, we usually get out, we're first on site, you know, we build the structure and then MEP comes in at some point along the way and they're hot and heavy. And then it's like, oh crap, we got to put penetrations here. And then it's kind of back to the drawing boards and it kind of sucks your management back in um, because we're, you know, we're already kind of phasing out of that type of coordination aspect of it and it sucks us back in and it it really helps to get up front and it helps facilitate the whole project through i think once we start now it does take some as you're aware trend it you have to get up front and get out in front of this thing pretty early to make it worthwhile i agree we on the project that i'm on right now we actually are so aggressive that our precast enclosure contractor is part of our design build team um, so we wanted to, our intent there was that alongside of the structure being designed, precast is also designing their connections and embed, embeds to align with the, the superstructure. Cool. So, so I would second that, Lauren, that's, um, that's kind of our company MO is, you know, we were actually just a design build GC firm. And then we started dabbling in precast and that's kind of like, exploded in the last couple of years. And that's really what we're kind of focusing on now is more precast structures, but as having those roots and design build, that's kind of what we try to, you know, push is let us come in as like a design build representative as a member, let it get us in early. And, and that's really helped out a lot. I think the joke used to be that like you guys were the one thing that wasn't going to move in coordination. Like everybody else was in the coordination meeting and we all move and then structure is sitting there and they're not moving. So just understand that you got to get out of structure before you can do anything else. So it's, it's nice to see that you guys are moving into that. I have not dealt with concrete a lot. I, I just had one on a coordination job I was doing and I literally asked the lady in charge. I said, 
um, it looks like your building's missing a lot of beams that I'm usually trying to avoid. And she's like, no, 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 it's all, it's all precast. It's all concrete. And I said, so all of that big area is full of concrete where I was seeing that dude run his piping. And he, she's like, yeah, you got to get it out of there. I'm like, oh, awesome. <laughs> oh boy. Or you can just cast it in. Just send them your assembly of stuff and be like, hey, can you cast this in your precast and send it out on site? Thanks. Yeah, that would that be was awesome. going to be one of my questions that that we've talked about. You know, we, you know, from our aspect, you know, like Trent said from the MEP, we've we've tried to get you our sleeves and all that stuff when we get to the concrete stuff. But I mean, is that something that's really possible these days? Can we can we basically almost you know pre route our our pipe and everything through the walls that you're going to do? I I'll oh, let I don't know. Respond. <laughs> I, I was I'm gonna trying say, to shoot uh, for the moon here. So what I mean, tell us what's possible. <laughs> As far as uh, plumbing goes and mechanical duct work, I'm not sure, other than maybe some openings and things like that, that's probably the extent we got. Um, now, electrical is a different story because their conduits, you know, smaller in diameter. We actually, on the project and I are now the electrical subcontractor. They actually had a representative at our manufacturing plant the whole time we were casting precast walls. And we actually got them. We were at a level of coordination engineering where we could give them our panel shop drawings. They would lay out in CAD their conduit runs, prefabricate their conduit runs, ship it to our manufacturing site. And they had representatives on site that were actually placing them in the bed while we were casting. So it, it worked out pretty well. Um, so if you can get, again, the name of the game is getting in early and starting early. If you can get ahead that early, then a lot of this stuff, really becomes easy um, and it helps the guys in the field. So what, what, to what TJ was saying, actually I had this conversation ironically this afternoon with uh, some Army Corps of Engineer representatives. We were talking about um, some conduit routes um, and we've got, we just did a massive site electrical duct bank coordination effort and we were talking about the precast structures that come from a well-known, I don't know if I can say this, but a well-known structural <laughs> precast uh, company that does underground structures for electrical manholes and handholes. But anyways, he was saying that, that he he was had the privilege of being on a project where it was such a massive effort that, I mean, they're talking about like, I think he 72 something wide of, of conduit um, that had to go through this structure and they were able to kind of fabricate a frame, all of their a kind of a run of conduit this way and a run of conduit this way and a frame just to send it to the precast structure. Hey, pour this into your structure when you're making your fabricating your structure. And then when you set it out on site, all they have to do is uh, have some couplings and it's done. They don't have to go through, they don't have to sleep through the wall which we don't have anything big enough on this project to really warrant that, but right. kind of need that. He was talking about it. Cool. Well, that's cool. to think about so it. That, that's a good uh, point too, Lauren, is, is maybe not the structure itself, but blockouts. Um, one thing with, with precast is, you know, there is some critical reinforcing still that, that you can't move. Um, but if you get out, like I said, early enough, you know, we can, pretty much be flexible with a lot of our reinforcing in our design mm -hmm. and sometimes things that you wouldn't think we could incorporate we can incorporate 
as long as it's, you know, ahead of time and engineers can review it and we can get, you know, buy-in. And that really helps out a lot. And I think Trent can speak of it. You know, we got some double T's, which penetrating through a flange of a double T is really not hard, but we got some double T's on this detention center that it looks like Swiss cheese out there. I mean, if you walked out there before the top end was down, you'd, you'd look at it and say, man, this, this is crazy. But if we get out ahead early enough and we can design around it, we can make a lot happen. Yeah. I, I know we've seen some success on that project, TJ, but I mean, even from your perspective, um, have a lot of your projects been that way or, or is that just kind of the rarity or, or, or more often than not, the, you know, we're missing the boat on that. What's, what's your take? So I think, I think as an industry, we're kind of missing the boat on that. Um, you know, you get into these projects where you don't have that level of coordination and, and, you know, from a structural standpoint, MEP is kind of an afterthought. And then the design's done, you know, we, we cast these things, especially like a holocore structure. They, they cast hundreds of feet of holocore at a time because it's an extruded product. And, once it's designed, it's cast, and it's in the field, you guys as MEP contractors are really handcuffed on where you can penetrate. And there are some, you know, workarounds, but it always comes back to, you know, there's that one penetration that you can't move, and it hits something in a structural precast member that it can't hit. Well, we're doing remedials in the field to make it work. And that's just time and money that could, could have been avoided early on. So I, re I really think that from what I've seen, we're kind of – missing the boat on cost savings, time savings, on getting out ahead of this stuff. Now it does take does take a lot of resources up front um from the design team and management team, but I think it's resources well spent. Well, Jonathan, also, I'm sorry, go ahead, Lauren. I was just gonna say it's also resources offsetting of any field work required to do the field install because a lot of people are still in that mindset, I'll be fine, I'll quarter in the field, I'm allowed to well, you're just leaving it up to chance. Maybe your equipment fails that day. Maybe your your work uh, tradesmen are sick or who knows, anything could happen uh, or you screw up. I keep in mind, I wanted to cuss there. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> you, you screw up and you damage the precast and it's on the, the partner that did that. So you're just, you're just, controlling the situation and yeah. really preventing anything bad from happening. <laughs> I was, what I was going to come on and that's a, that's a great point is the, you know, Jonathan, we always seem to slide back into this, this conversation. We as MEPs lately is the, the DFMA and, and stuff and, and we got to be in sooner. We got to be in sooner. And that was going to be my question to, to Lauren, you know, on the GC side, are you starting to see a lot of calls for that? Are you starting to push for it yourselves? Um, you know, in that, in that realm to start getting some more partners to the table sooner. So you can have these, you can do all this work up front to, to make the process easier. Completely. So um, specifically on this project, we have a very aggressive design build partnership uh, set up uh, that is very model based uh, in the sense where our design documents that are 100% CVs are using fab ready uh, fab parts for like mechanical. So the ductwork has the insulation, has the flanges, is the actual part that's going to be schooled. Um, and, and the intent there was we only wanted 
the model to be touched from an authoring standpoint by one person. Um, you know, the, the designer of records still annotates and, and does that kind of stuff, but the goal being once we were released for construction, they can essentially go procure and, and school right from that instead of chew on it a little bit more. You know, granted, in, in real life, we still need to chew on it a little more because other people are adding more level of development stuff that still needs to be thought through but it really it really does move the timeline forward and love the, the opportunity for to pre-plan as much as possible really is in our favor so Absolutely. to kind of piggyback on what trent was asking or travis was asking is so when we get together in the MEP, we're always talking about design for manufacturing. It's like a constant background noise. When you guys get together in concrete, are they starting to like, cause we're at the point now where I think all of us want to put together pods and modules. And, you know, I mean, half of, uh, half of the discussion is about how much can we prefab before we ever get on site. Um, is that the same discussion that's going on in, in structural and concrete? Or are you guys just starting to break into that? Cause I, I would swear for the last, four years, everybody has been just how big can we prefab before we get to the job site on the MEP and trade side? I don't know. I would like to hear what TJ has to say about it. Cause I, th this is the first project I've ever had where we've like pre coordinated precast and connections. I mean, granted this is from a precast panel. So like a skin standpoint, but it's news to me. Like I've never, I've never done this. I, the only, the benefit I see is more of a schedule standpoint because they're fabricating anyway. So there's no prefabrication of exterior skin. You're just doing it. So I would, that's my only input on that, but I want to hear from TJ. Yeah. So as far as like, uh, like you said, Lauren, like wall panel jobs, I think, I think that's kind of a, an avenue that people tend to think of precast for skinning it. Um, I think we're starting to see more thought process of actual structure, the whole structure being precast outside of parking garages. Mm -hmm. um, and I really would like to see more, <laughs> obviously, because precast is our thing. But um, I think there are advantages of it that people just aren't realizing yet. I, I I mean, if you look at what they're doing over in Europe and overseas with precast, the U.S. is really behind on getting on this boat and kind of taking off with it. And I think as we start seeing schedule crunches um, happen more often, and I think the construction industry is kind of changing right now anyways, I think precast can really be, you know, advantageous to that. If, if we really kind of – everyone kind of has to hug together and kind of get on board with it. But I think if that happens, I, I could really see it taking off. Um, there's already been a spike in, you know, an uptick in interest in it from what we've seen. So. So I, I know that there's a couple of questions rolling in, but before we get to those, I wanted to kind of wrap up what, what we were talking about here with Jonathan and Travis talking about DFMA. So with, with the idea of getting in, getting that team together really early, um, I'll kind of throw my two cents to where, where I saw some disconnect on the project we were doing TJ and then I want um, you and Lauren's perspective on where you think we're missing the boat. Um, I would say TJ on our job and from my eyes, a lot of the, um, the sub trades got together pretty early 
And I think the GC was involved very early and coordination started to roll. But I think the piece that was missing that really hurt us was owner buy-in, right? It, it seemed like it seemed like maybe the owner wasn't seeing um, or wasn't agreeing upon some of the design that we were coordinating and that forced changes down the road. And I think that's where maybe, maybe some of the, the coordination fell through, but I, I'd love to hear where you guys think some of the disconnect is. So speaking of that trend on this, this project, I would agree with that. Um, I think the GC really, they were, they were heavily involved early on with coordination. I think they didn't have dedicated management that was from all aspects, even not just the MEP uh, management, but from structural management, whoever their PM is that's dedicated for structure or PM, so on and so forth. I don't think they had true buy-in from keeping up with the coordination that was happening. And I think that was a big disconnect. Um, I think you got to have somebody that's involved from the get-go and is really kind of managing this and keeping keeping their head in the game. And then that has to translate to the field too. Um, so I think we're still seeing some disconnect in the field from the coordination that happened early on. I think the owner buy-in part, um, my opinion is it's a lack in technology. And I think, Lauren, you might have alluded to this earlier, maybe not in, intentional, but you said that on a project you had, you were trying to basically keep ownership of who only having one person in the model making changes. Well, on the project Trent and I were on, we, we had a, a model where basically everybody was kind of working in their own model and then we would collaborate together. That worked great for coordination early on, but it was hard to get to track the changes that were occurring and then kick out something easily for owner buy-in at that point in time. You know, and then we ran into issues with timestamps and, okay, well, this penetration moved or this, you know, this block out moved and, well, this is cast, so on and so forth. And yeah, you really point. run into issues with there's, there's a lack of technology to allow this type of coordination to happen and track it, I think, is the main thing is tracking. So, yeah, I mean, I think there, that's where your disconnect comes from. We certainly I was gonna fail say the, at tracking. <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of a shit show, to be honest. You're just, oh crap, you moved yep. it. And you know, then you get people pissed off and I spent three weeks doing that and now I have to do something else. Um, it's, but that is the, the beautiful chaos of a design build project. You just have to roll with it. I, I would put out there that like when the integrated collaboration platform, people hear what you guys just said, they're gonna like lose their mind and email you. <laughs> With, with like all of their ways to track 3D models and everything. Cause that's kind of like, we, we're running to that in the trades all the time where, where we get, we get there, we get this design build going. It has to make changes in almost an agile level. Like almost every week there's constant changes. And so there's a bunch of companies out there that have decided to call what they're doing integrated collaboration platforms. And they just do a really good job of rotating issues throughout the entire design team. Mm -hmm. I did like, I did one of those, I would call it like almost agile jobs with a, with a chemical manufacturer. Okay. And we literally had the engineer in there. We had the architect in there. We had the owner in there. And so we were just flagging like, this is yours. This is yours. This is yours. And the coordination meetings were, did you get your stuff done? Did you answer us? Cause if you didn't, we can't. So I think there's like, I guarantee you, you will both get like calls from software companies talking about integrated collaboration platform because that's their new acronym for for tying all those things together. Well, um, closure about like 
we, for, for me specifically, the reason why we're probably failing at it is we have a lot of restrictions on what we can and can't use. Like, crazy story, but we're not using a popular design collaboration platform that hosts everybody's models in a cloud environment. We have, we rely on static model transfers Mondays and Wednesdays because mm -hmm. we can't have our data. Yeah, that hurts. Cloud. <laughs> so, so yeah. we're a little like antiquated. We had, we took about 10, 10 years of steps backwards. Um, so you gotta get creative and you just uh, have to deal with it as it is. Is that, is that a uh, projects thing or is that a, it's a company. department of defense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that sure. makes perfect sense. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. No said. No said. Trent and I know plenty about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, before we didn't too... send you a dot matrix printer when you start <laughs> right. that. So. Yeah. Right. You, you, can you translate Morse code? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got a, a a pile of questions here, but one thing that I, I was messaging back and forth with Jeff about was we kind of realized there, you know, we're half hour in here already and we didn't really get you guys to introduce yourselves. Um, we got That's you to talk mistake. about, we got you guys to talk about what you're drinking. Um, but not, not really what your role in the company is and, and how point. you got there and, and so, and how that forms your, your perspective on this discussion. Yes. That's what so happens when Jeff to... lets me take over. The <laughs> right. MC, you know. We're already Jeff, off the rails. Jeff, Jeff's the pro at that. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Lauren, we'll start with you. Sorry. I guess we really didn't do any real formal introduction. So that's okay. No. Um, well, I'm Lauren Williams. Um, as you heard before, I prefer wine, not truly, but I also have my poem. So um, no, I'm uh, I'm a VDC manager for McCarthy building companies in the central region. Uh, so I'm based out of St. Louis, Missouri. And um, I, my background is structural engineering. Um, I did that for a good year maybe if I'm lucky but it was very it was too specific for me I was looking I'm a little bit more extroverted than a structural engineer would be so <laughs> I went over to the dark side in construction and I've sort of grown up through operations more of the project engineering project management so I have a lot of that site management project management background and I happen to have sort of a knack and a passion for just construction technology in general and that landed me uh with BIM in my lab uh, back when, you know, hey, can you do this BIM thing was a thing about 10 years ago or seven, 2012. What year is it? So eight years. Eight, you're close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I everything I know about BIM and BDC has been on the job training. And so I've morphed into this weird operations, virtual construction construction technology person uh, you know I today I did a process map for how to route a submittal but sometimes I do really hardcore coordination and some people sometimes I remind people on how to do an outlook shared calendar you know like so <laughs> I'm, I'm a you're all over the place I'm a Swiss Army knife yes right <laughs> all right TJ well, give us your story project manager for the Bristol group. Um, we're a design build GC firm, precast manufacturing firm out of Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, my background, uh, I, I, I was a structural engineer by trade. Um, I did a 
small stand at ExxonMobil doing engineering, realized that the office life wasn't for me. So I jumped into uh, construction. Yep. And uh, worked for a few years for a large cast and place company. Um, it was a little too far from home. Had an opportunity at Bristol, got in with Bristol, and it kind of was a perfect fit. So I went from cast and place to precast and design build. So um, as far as technology goes, uh, self-taught. I didn't really take any uh, tech classes when I was in college. Um, so, like, anything like CAD or Revit, it's, it's all self, self-taught, self-learned. Um, I do enjoy it, though. I can't stand whenever uh, I don't know how to use a program, so that's probably where it, where it mostly comes from. So, I've seen you fly around Revit on that project. I, I, I'll give you props. Yeah. <laughs> so. Appreciate it. All right. Um, well, now that we, or we got the introductions out of the way, sorry about that, guys. Little, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, better, better late than never. That's Thanks, Jeff, for, for bringing that back up. I guess it's a good time to get to some of the questions. Let's start knocking out. Um, you know, the first one I'm seeing, Nathan Wood asks, how far is the engineering uh, taking design before handing off to MEP? So I'll speak, TJ, for our, I believe our project was saying about 60%. Um, I think that's what they were going with. I can You can elaborate if you know something different. A lot of times. Yeah, I'd say sorry but you're fine yeah i would say that's accurate for the project we're on now which is honestly probably the best project i've seen for pre-coordination um with our precast products uh pretty accurate i mean we were we were probably cast out with 30 to 40 percent of the building ahead of construction start so if that gives you any idea of how far ahead we were pre-coordinated with MEP in design? Yeah, 60%. So 60%, um, you know, 100% DDs or right into the startup CDs is really when you start seeing that uh, switch over. Um, and in our instance, in this unique model-based delivery method, um, I would even argue that we didn't start modeling stuff until a certain point at which you could actually put stuff on paper because it would have been silly to start doing that. So I think that that's a pretty standard whether you'd like to admit it or not. However you do it, you have to do a certain amount of engineering before you can actually start modeling something. So one quick caveat to that, um, you, you say like 60% DDs and CDs. One thing that's important about precast and precast manufacturing that um, I think is misconceived is that precast, you have to have, we don't have unlimited space to, to precast. No manufacturer has unlimited space, unlimited bed space to make these products. So you basically secure a bed slot and then that's your bed slot for production. Um, it usually aligns with pro project schedule pretty well. Um, we try to align it as best as we can, but we are casting before a lot of times before you guys are hitting these 60% DDs. So our design is pretty much at construction level when we start casting at least those individual pieces, which tie into the whole structure. So it, we are, we're pretty far ahead of when you guys actually hit that point. And I think that's kind of missed sometimes when the, these conversations are had. Well, so that's interesting you say that because when I when I read the question that Nathan 
wrote, I wasn't thinking it from the perspective that you were thinking of that question. So it's, I gotcha. Yeah. So it's really unique though, that you say that because that's a huge disconnect. That's a, yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, because you guys are TJ, you guys are like, if you think of a traditional manufacturing, you've got a, an order for a thousand widgets, right? I mean, you're going to get out there and you're going to try to kick off those thousand widgets as early and fast as possible. Right. And two, we're also talking about, you know, sometimes, you know, 40, 50 foot panels by 12 foot wide, double teaser, you know, can get up to 60 foot, however big you're talking about. You're not talking about little things that can be stored in a warehouse. You know, we got limited yard space. We're trying to coordinate, you know, when can we fit this in the bed to fabricate it? When can we minimize putting it on the yard and getting it to the project, but still have all the design done? And then as far as manufacturing goes for precast, we try to have our shop drawings for individual pieces at construction level pretty much like two weeks ahead of when they cast. So question so, about your shop drawings. Do you model everything or do you, is it all CAD? Um, so we are actually modeling it now. Um, I can't remember the exact software that our, our design team uses. Um, we were in CAD for a long time simply because we were trying to utilize lasers on the bed. And at the time we thought that CAD was the only thing we could get laser files to really kick into. We found out that wasn't true. And then we had some other issues with lasers not related. So, but we are in modeling now. Um, on large structures like the Project Trend Iron, they actually drew those, I'm pretty sure, in CAD just because of the speed, because a lot of detailers are used to CAD and precast. Um, there are some companies out there that don't use CAD at all, but as far as who we use for our consultants, they were they were faster than CAD. So on this large structure with a lot of pieces, we had almost 7,000 pieces of precast on that job, Trent. So in case you didn't know, it's it's quite it's pretty big. Mm -hmm. So uh, talking about speed and trying to get them out, they were used to CAD. That's what they drew it in. But I prefer modeling um, because on my side, I like the information you get out of models. You really don't get in for any information out of CAD, so. Well, the reason I asked is, I mean, it's a little bit more specific to cast in place, but there are some precast elements that within the precast that were modeled that we found, we've quality controlled so much crap within concrete just by modeling the rebar and any in concrete structural elements. I mean, even within the stuff that's on the structural documents and just by assuming that responsibility and doing that for just a for communication tool has been incredible. Um, so it'd be interesting. Like if, if, if somebody like you were to come to the table to somebody like us already with like, here you go, here's, here's my model with all my rebar and everything in it, that would be crazy awesome. So, yeah, I guess let me draw back um, on this, the project that, I keep going back to um because it's like i said it's probably the best one i've seen with coordination the actual structure itself uh, was modeled uh dimensionally all the precast members were in there modeled correctly um all the reinforcement was not modeled just because of the sheer amount it would our mm -hmm. the model was already heavy anyways um but actual individual shop drawings themselves for each individual piece were separate outside so the level of coordination for like Trent's team, if they wanted to put a pipe penetration to, for the most part, they could see the critical reinforcement in the model and try to avoid it, which was, I think, I think that helped out a lot. I don't know, Trent, I'll let you speak to that with what you saw in our model. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, actually, this is this is a pretty good segue to a question that we have, and we can kind of we can kind of tie these together. So, um, I we got a question from Chad Pettit, and he's saying uh, a five floor structure I'm coordinating is using precast floors on all five floors. We are requested. Whoop, just went to the answer queue. One second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's totally my fault. I'm learning. Oh, you're again. good. You're good. You're good. Hey, that's that's what happens when you do it live. We are, we are requested to send our penetration drawings almost before true coordination begins. How does the industry work with that? Do you set penetrations and then route to those penetrations and hope you don't need a lot more fittings, or is it a case of a lot of core drilling? Right. So that that kind of ties into what what we're talking about, right, TJ, with, with getting out early and out in front of this. Um, I can tell you that the situation you're in, Chad, um, is you're already behind, unfortunately, uh, it, in the grand scheme of things. But I feel you because there's areas of the building where we were in that same situation. So kind of what we did is, you know, we, we modeled where we knew certain um, rises and certain areas needed pipe. And then uh, you coordinated those openings, and then when you got into official coordination, you sort of coordinated those the suspended. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, set in concrete. <laughs> so they're, they're, they actually prefabric, precast the floors. They literally delivered a floor and put it right there. That's crazy. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, right, <laughs> right, TJ. I mean, that, that's that's what you're doing. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So we actually had two different types of uh, precast decking. Um, we had double T's for areas that had higher loading, oh, right. and then we had hollow core, hollow core for areas that um, that we could get by with it. Oh, okay. I've had I've had experience with the double T's. I did an IKEA at one point, and that was that was interesting. But yeah, because they've got and they've got crazy zones that you can't attach to or hang from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. I, th I think the thing that Chad's bringing up is something that I ran into a lot where we're, we're kind of asked before coordination even starts where we want to put stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when we do inevitably make a mistake because they're like coordination's not started. We don't know where we're supposed to go yet. Like we, we can make a guess, but then they come back and say, well, you're the one that told us to put the hole there. And, and, and you know, so is there, is there any way that you guys see where you guys could get us sort of a, a longer a longer runway like are there anything i realize that you guys have just really um had a few jobs that did this but i mean if we had just a little more runway and i would imagine trent you agree with us that we we could do a lot better at making sure that the information you guys get is the information that makes the best building and, and produces the best systems but but do you see any way we could get more runway so i would say that from my side as a precaster wanting to, to basically the name of the game for me is to nail down the design and get tickets to my, to my plant as soon as possible. So they can get, they can review order material, so on and so forth. Um, the best way that I think to do is as long as the precaster has their production schedule pretty much nailed down, which sometimes is, is risky because you get, you want to produce it and that follows the, how you're putting the building together and knowing that up front is kind of hard sometimes with what trades you're following or where you need to follow what trades are falling behind you and how that fits into the schedule altogether. Um, but if you can have a production schedule ahead of time, essentially each, each piece 
has a production date. And each penetration that you'll potentially have is going to penetrate a piece. So if the precaster has a production schedule out ahead of time and share that information with you, then basically what, what I did or what I've done in the past is it's like, okay, here's our production schedule. I actually shared it and we did, we do our production schedules in Microsoft teams with Excel. So more, more people can get in it and look at it and change it. Um, shared it with some of the MEP trades on the job that Trent are on now and said, look, these are our production dates. You have up until two weeks before this date to make changes. If you want to make changes from what you've already coordinated, you got to let me know and then we can work from there. Um, so essentially give us something to start with. Here's your drop dead date to have it finalized and then we're producing it. And that kind of is the best way to maximize your runway. Yeah, and, and, and we worked a lot with that. And actually, T, TJ's group was uh, was really friendly um, in that process. So it's kind of um, even, you know, speaking uh, like Chad's question, even if you're a mechanical and you're dealing with precast, you know, don't don't be afraid to reach out to those precasters and, and try to, uh, you know, try to, to spear some kind of coordination with them. Because, I mean, TJ, you can speak to this, you know, I. I know it benefits us a lot in our fabrication process to get to get stuff like that lined out. But I mean, asking you guys to do things like that, I mean, it, it, is it a big burden on you or do you guys prefer to uh, to see that kind of coordination before you build? I would prefer to see it done. Um, to me, it's, it's the biggest pain in the ass after a piece is out there and someone comes back and says, I got a I got a cord drill through this and it hits, you know, critical reinforcement. And it's like, oh, whoa. We got to drop back and punt. I got to figure out a, a structural repair if you do court. So getting out in front to me is the best thing. Um, it is kind of a burden if you get into if if you get into that two week time frame, two or three weeks. I mean, I think each precaster has something different. For us, it's two weeks. So if you get in that two week time frame where we've already basically nailed down the the shop drawing for that individual piece and either released it to our to our plant or it's in the queue to release and then we come back and change it, then I'm asking the engineer to revisit things that they've already drawn and they've already reviewed, and that kind of kicks the process all over again. So if you really get into that buffer zone, it becomes a burden. But anything before that, I think, helps everybody out. So, you know, with a lot of times when you do MEP coordination, the the first step is to coordinate just mains and bulk and risers and that kind of stuff. So. I would imagine, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn or out of place, but at the point at which you're involved as a precast a contractor, the mains and risers could potentially be established already. And so the bulk of those massive penetrations, the things that which require structural engineering to verify should be able to be accounted for. And maybe, maybe not always because, you know, shit happens. And, and these smaller ones, like a, a domestic waterline or something, isn't that big deal, and it, it ends up being a core drill. Yeah, so you bring up a good point. So any type of large penetration. Um, the block out? It really, yeah, you have the large block out. You have to, we have to design around it. So basically frame around it if it is outside of the limitations of the precast member that we're, we're doing. So we'll we have limitations on what you can do through a single piece. And then if it's larger than that, 
then we have to actually frame around it. So having those nailed down early on really helps because that's not a that's not a shop drawing thing. That's a that's a build building framing thing that we have to address. So that's a good point. Like coming, I, I think that's a thing that kills us a lot of times though, is like, depending on which engineer we work with, because usually if it's that early, you're not working with the contractor yet, you're working with the engineer. So like a good engineer gets his risers right. They just do, and you know who they are. But like the bad ones, you know, I mean, I, I literally like a year ago, probably moved 50% of all the risers because they were just, there was no possibility of getting fittings into the chases that they wanted to get them without moving the risers. And, and that happened like after the floors were already going up. I mean, the steel was up. We, we had actually gone in and scanned it after the fact. So, so I think that's where we kind of get the rub sometimes is the level of engineering expertise. We'd almost, we, we'd love it if you guys would like call a contractor just right before, <laughs> right, right, right when you get the job, just say, hey, could you guys review the risers and make sure that this is not, you know, crazy pants engineer not to beat up on engineers. I was one for like a decade and it was fine, but, but I didn't know what I was doing. So, you know. Yeah. That early communication goes a long way though. I mean, I, I think we got, you know, TJ and I got together as early as we could. Nothing's ever early enough, right. For the project, but uh, you try to try to make it as best you can. I, I guess I'll use this segue a little to try and check a couple more. Um, of our Q&As off here. Um, TJ, this one's kind of directed at you. Uh, it's interesting. Does a precaster own the risk when they jump in that early? It's, uh, I think it depends. Um, I think it depends on where the precast, because essentially you have the structural engineer record, then you have the precast engineer record. And I think those those lines, how blurry those are, um, your risk is, is kind of shared there. And then I think it also depends on the GC's involvement. From a precaster standpoint, I want the GC involved on all coordination. Anything that has risk associated to it, I want them involved on. And they, they need to have visibility on that. And then it, it's not so much a, a precast company, MEP company, who has the risk. It's, listen, we're working together as a team. As the GC, this is what we're doing. We have shared risk in this. And I think that's the best approach. Um, you really don't want to get into this, you know, he said, she said game because then it kind of always gets messy. I think everybody kind of wants to avoid that. That's probably kind of dancing around your question and not giving a direct answer. But that's, that's really the best way to approach it, if you want my opinion. And, and we've ran into that. And I think Trent's team and my team, I think we've approached this fairly well you know there was times that you know Trent's team called and said look these things have to move you know what do we do here and it's like well we've already cast it but we could do this for you and and it it's really goes back to that working together and coordination and if you have that good you know camaraderie then really your risk of having something off you're talking about maybe core drilling and, and the cost of core drill and the cost of infill which right. if you get to a lot of them that's that's pretty expensive but if sure. you can try to mitigate it you know you know what GCs like to do is GCs like to say they have this nice little language that says coordination is the responsibility of the contractor. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so right. I, but I, deep in my heart, I love, love actually facilitating coordination. So, 
um, I'd be happy to help you co coordinate you and your mechanical person. I, get, I think the biggest thing is just visibility. You don't want to work in a vacuum. You know, you don't want the precaster working in a vacuum. You don't want the MEP trades working in a vacuum. And, and you certainly don't want those two coordinating in a vacuum without the GC being aware of what's going on. Right. Because this is, this is uncharted territories for a lot of MEPs, right? I mean, like Jonathan said earlier, the, um, a lot of MEPs don't know to talk to structure and during coordination. They see structure as something that is concrete, you know, in place, not gonna, and uh, it's never a part of it. So, um, you know, you gotta kind of change that paradigm. And I'm sure there's uh, GCs, coordinators like Lauren, who will remind them, hey, you know, dum dum, you know, you can talk to these guys. Like, they're, they're a part of this process too, so. Uh, and I think we answered one of the other questions. Chad had a follow-up, you know, um, if they do fall behind, uh, can precast be core drilled if it comes down to it? And TJ, you know, uh, the, the answer is yes, but with rules, right? I mean, so. They have yep. the typical details that say, okay, um, you know, if it's Sunday and it's sunny, you can go through this area. And if it's... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. That was, that was my attempt at a joke. Hey, Trent. You knew being, being that you were on the job with, with uh, TJ and, and you have like a, you have like augmented reality in your tech stack already. Did you, did you use any of it to see where the rebar is? Cause I'm like, that was the first thing that I thought of when we started talking about this is I would love to set it up in such a way that I can look through the concrete and see where the rebar is. And, and we're getting to the point where that's not like a huge trick. Like if we sat down and we tried it, we could get it right. But like, did you, did you play with any of that on this job? So we did use augmented reality to uh, QAQC some of TJ's openings. I know we did that. Not to um, not to say that we were trying to catch him on anything, but you know, uh, when when your vested interest isn't mine, you know, you're you're double checking some of that stuff. But as far as uh, you know, the the pretension cables and things like that, um, those weren't technically modeled. So uh, no, I mean we didn't we didn't really get a chance to to check any of that. But I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. I'm sure somewhere down the road that that kind of stuff is definitely going to be doable. So Jonathan, what we, what we ran into when modeling is that when you start modeling every piece of pre-stress strand or every, you know, line of mesh and, and rebar, because some of these things have mesh and rebar in them um, and, and pre-stress pre strand, when you start modeling all of that, and you have a project with with a lot of pieces it the model almost becomes so daunting that you know my computer can't run it you know so but we did try to set up and i don't know if this i hope it helps you guys out Trent, but we did try to set up guidelines for each type of precast member that would be in the deck so if it was a holocore it's like look you guys can you guys can do this and this and try to avoid this if it's a double t you can you can basically penetrate anywhere in these guideline areas and try to narrow it down to where you're not trying to go through and pick apart and see where the rebar is, but more so just geometry. You're looking at the piece itself and saying, okay, well, I can, I can go here, you know? And then that's kind of that back and forth coordination is that with the model, it's great because you can go in and model it. And then at a certain point, 
you know, flip it over to the precast and say, hey, I modeled my penetration. Can you review it? And then we'd print a PDF set out, review it, mark it up, and, and go from there. Yeah. Yeah. They did a really excellent job of modeling um, the cores in the hollow core and stuff like that. But every little cable, yeah, it's just – we're not quite there yet, but who's to say? I mean, I would not say this if it wasn't an actual dork cast, but, but like, and, and this is so total nerd, but um, so Revit did this really cool thing where they'll let you bring NWCs into your model and they're super lightweight. So if somebody models all the rebar in some separate model and you bring it in as an NWC in Revit, it actually is lightweight enough that you can use it. Like I use little gaming computers that are nothing and, and they can handle it. So like it, it, it looks like a lot of the tech is there to do it. It's just, they haven't, no one sits down and like says, okay, if you get too detailed, save everything off to the side, republish as NWC, push it back into your model. You know, we had that with um, point clouds because point clouds used to be these huge files and now you can make them into meshes turn the mesh into an NWC, which is, again, this dork cast, I don't have to explain everything, but it, it, and then push it back into your model. And it's like super lightweight. We have these super lightweight models that are now showing point clouds because we flipped it three times. So I think, I think why we don't see them now, because exactly what you said, like the model, you can't get beyond a room before your computer just throws up. I, I think that they're getting better. Like the software providers are getting to the point where hopefully like in, in 12 months or a year, we'll be able to actually look at some of that stuff. You know what I mean? Cool. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, you're all right. All the other <laughs> shows, all the other shows, they're like, hey, don't say anything geeky. I'm like, dude, we can do this. I guarantee it's this just the like, place for it. like all we have to do is flip file types like six times and then we'll right. be fine. We, not free no. cables, but we, so we're going to have post tension um, parking structures on our project. So uh, we needed, we will be assuming a self-performed modeling just for the sake of visibility only, just in congested areas where, you know, around the corner or something like that, just, just so we can see it because it is, it is so beneficial that having that visualization in, um, in your back pocket. So from my standpoint, going back to my cast and place days, if I was doing a post-tension deck, I would consider the post-tension strands as critical reinforcement, and I would request that our detailers have that in the model. Oh, nice. Um, similar, similar to, like, on some wall panel jobs where you get shear walls, you'll have some critical rebar in that shear wall that it can't move. Oh, totally. And it can't move, and that's something that, you know, MEP trades need to see, mm -hmm. not just the geometry of the panel, but they need to see that the, these, you know, these connections, these NMB sleeves, these rebar dowels, they can't move, and they're there. And that's type of the kind of stuff that, you know, I would request that our detailers have in the model um, at minimum. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. DJ off to the side just said that we could accomplish some of that, like with 360 photos and yes. lightweight meshes Here's too. So, so like it, recommended. It, um, there's a few others, but they are super powerful for that specifically. Yeah, very it's, cool. We were getting stuck on the heated floors. You know how you have to put the PEX pipe in the heated floors? We, we always like would go back, scan that, and then try to, try to get it back there so that people could see where it was. So when you did mess up and start putting in the, the studs, you're not like slamming through one of my pipes. Cool. Well, we're, uh, we're starting to get close to the hour. I want to, I think we have a question here that we can 
take care of real quick. I don't want to leave DJ Phipps out. You know, he, he's got over here in the Q&A. How do you handle deflection and double tees or precast elements and coordinate around that? I would say that deflection is one of those things that's really hard for the MEPs to really, because you don't necessarily know which way or what way it's going to do it. But TJ, I'll let you kind of speak. Do we see a lot of deflection in double tees or precast? This is a uh, deflection and camber and precast, I think is one of the most overlooked design concepts by everybody involved in projects. Um, a good precast engineer, when they, when they put out a design, um, they should have a calculated camber for each, for each design. So Holocore, you can have a certain strand pattern for a certain live load area, or you can have one strand pattern across the board. They should have a calculated camber for that 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 strand pattern. Same thing with a double T. They should have a calculated maximum camber based on the loading that's going to be seen. From there, you should be able to talk with your precast engineer or precast team and figure out what the camber is going to be and what the foreseen deflection is going to be. And then you kind of got to take – it's really kind of an average of that. You're going to see some differences, and I will say this, PCI, which is – the guiding of precast, you know, precast concrete. It uh, it really helps out precasters. It gives us a more leeway and tolerance than, than what you would imagine. Um, but again, I think talking about it early, it never gets talked about. I don't think we, on the detention center, I don't think they talked about deflection or camber except for maybe once, and that was in 2018, and we started construction in 19. So. Right. It, uh, point. it needs to be brought up. It needs to be talked about across the board, everybody involved. Um, and you should have some starting point with it. It's not just a guess, but. Lauren, you had, to a, point you had out, a good point on that. I, oh. I was going to say, I have to point out something real quick. We're, we at the Dorcast are trying to recreate what happens at, at after hours at a, at an event, right? An industry event. And I have to, I wish we could stream the chat box into the podcast at the same time because Lauren and DJ are having a side conversation. Yeah, I know. And that is exactly what would happen if we were all sitting around yeah. a bar at an AGCIT event or an MCA event or anything like that. It's awesome. That's why I said I, I want Lauren to, she, she had a really good point. That's why I'm reading over here. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> So Lauren, now speak what you taught. There you, you go. Yeah. Oh, so DJ had, he, DJ said something about uh, tolerances that are pain to work with in clash with Navis. And I said, heck yeah. In fact, I am vehemently against using the tolerance feature in Navis because A, every time I feel like I enter a value in, it changes it to a negative and a positive. And I can't remember what the fuck I'm supposed to do. So it's easier to have a modeled object to clash against so that's there goes itunes <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say lauren you're gonna get the award for dropping the most curse words on a podcast so far congratulations <laughs> that was more of like a never mind uh, no we love it we love okay. it carry on so it's easier to have like a modeled object for to clash against and then you can you know play with parents profilers sorry come on in boss here's my boss alex bellhopper he's um you know, hovering over me. The crashing party. Talking yeah. about modeling like things that aren't necessarily modeled that you need to clash against. Right. You model it in Revit, that way you can bring it in, you can apply appearance profilers, you can change the colors, you might get um, change the opacity. 
all that kind of stuff to make it um, <laughs> uh, something that you can clash against and actually measure against. I mean, that's why we, we model hangers, we model no-fly zones, we model clearances on cable trays. Today, one of my engineers actually like blew my mind. There's this really uh, uh, very obscure detail in our parking structure design that you can't actually penetrate the ramp or the slab in these random zones. And I'm not quite sure why, but they're not modeled. So nobody's gonna know. And so he went in and drew a block and whatever. And now you know you can't go there. It's not in the model. You don't coordinate against it. Right. That's right. just the rule. Oh yeah, but you, don't, didn't you bend it? Didn't you it? You should know. I'm just a dumb detailer, man. I don't know. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, well, what a talk. That 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 was uh, that that was more than I bargained for. I think the topic was great. I think we had the perfect guess for it. Uh, I, th I think it worked out well. Sorry, I cussed and made you get off iTunes. Uh, we That's all okay. I do is check one little box. I check one little box and we're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you worry. But we're trying to manage clicks here, Lauren. I mean, we're trying to eliminate, you know. It's... We need that Spotify money. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Rogan, uh, Rogan definitely has to be MA. So, you know, we're good. Explicit. He's going to be that way. We're going to be that way. Again, we're, we're modeling here. Um, like we said earlier, too, it's construction. Like everybody knows those words. Okay. <laughs> Jeff, you want to close us out? I mean, you're the pro. I, I've been limping us along in Jeff's absence here. So well, you've done a great job, and I wanted to I wanted to follow through on what what Travis said and just put that vulnerability out here. This has been awesome to sit here and listen to all of you talk and feel really dumb, because you know, there's I'm usually one of the ones having the side conversation of some sort because it's like, well, I, I like TJ, you used so many words that I was like. I'm trying to look them up over here, except the curse words, learn, Lauren, it was the same with you. So I know those those. the only ones I knew. <laughs> so, but now it's the feel guys. And, and to everybody listening, this is the feel of what we wanted. This is why we did the dorks. This is why, you know, we just came off of the CPC and we got a lot of uh, interaction for people giving us ideas and we want these ideas. And it's about you. It's about TJ. It's about Lauren. You know, it's about our perspectives, but it's about dorking out like Jonathan. I couldn't have, I couldn't have embraced it more that you just went down the road and never explained a darn thing that you said, because that's why we started this thing, isn't it? Because we don't explain ourselves unless one of us forces the other to explain ourselves because we're going to be vulnerable enough to go, I don't know what you're talking about, um, <laughs> which, you know, doesn't, doesn't necessarily always happen unless we've, you know, had a drink or two along the way. So, um, but we really wanted to thank everybody for joining and listening. TJ, I want to thank you for joining and for all of your insights. It was really great to hear you come out and talk about the reality of the, continually and the dog waited till the end. That's perfect. Yeah, that's nice. yeah. And, and, and you really, that, you know, that bingo box on your podcast list. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and you, you really talked about, you know, DFMA and getting things in earlier and stress that point. And we appreciate that. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And like I said earlier, I think, uh, I think we're kind of behind, on getting precast involved in all this stuff. So I would love if, if anybody's got any questions or follow up, you know, send me a message on LinkedIn. I don't care to have these conversations and I actually enjoy having these conversations because yeah. I want to, I want to push precast as much as I can. Cause I think it's, I think it's a great, yeah. you know, a great thing to have on a project. Nathan, so. if you're listening, let's, let's get, let's get TJ involved in the CPC. What do you say? So this is the okay. kind of people that we need to be pushing up front. This is great. 
And on, and on that note, Lauren Williams, I cannot thank you enough for joining us, but also the relationship that we've had, your work at the AGCIT Forum. You know, you have somebody who runs the AGCIT Forum that is a BIM manager in, B, in, in VDC, and that says a lot about you. And I appreciate all of the things that you bring and the color that you are because you are Lauren through and through. So thanks for joining <laughs> us. And yeah, I can't say thanks enough. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I thoroughly love this conversation. In fact, like this is the happiest I've been at a six o'clock on uh, at work in a long time. So thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. So, and to everybody who joined us and asked all those questions and make this podcast what it is and make this dork movement what it is, we appreciate you. Remember to go let your dork flag fly. Um, go check out Travis's post where it talks about you know, exclaiming that you are a dork and because this movement's not about any one of us, it's about all of you. So bring your ideas, bring your enthusiasm and thank you for listening. Join us next time. We'll see you guys in two weeks for another episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Thanks guys.